Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to come and examine your word and to see what you would have us to learn from these passages and guide and lead us. And just thank you for each person that's here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Ezekiel chapter 29, starting at verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, in the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his rivers, which has said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. But I will put hooks in your jaws, and I will cause the flesh of your rivers to stick the fish of the rivers to stick to your scales, and I will bring you up out of the midst of the rivers, and out of the and all the fish of your rivers shall stick unto your scales, and I will leave you thrown into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers, you shall fall upon the open fields, you shall not be brought together, nor gathered. I have given you for meat to the beasts of the field and to the fowls of the heaven. And all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because I, they have been a staff or a reed to the house of Israel. Then they took hold of their, when they took hold of your hand, you did break and rent all their sh shoulder. And when you, they leaned upon you, you broke and made their loins to be a stand. All right, so we're going to look at this. This is a curse being pronounced against Egypt. Egypt at this particular time, as Nebuchadnezzar is coming to power, is a minor power nation in that region. Minor, somewhat, they're, they're, compared to what they used to be, they're minor, but they're still one of the stronger nations and, and ready for war. And this one says, in a very specific time, in the 10th year, in the 10th month of the 12th day of the month, God said to, told him to make this message. And he says, Son, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all of Egypt. So he turns toward Egypt, which would be to the southwest, and speaks this message against them. Or it might have even sent it in scroll, but uh, he's, he's far away and he's sending this message to them. And it says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his rivers, which has said, the river is my own and I have made it for myself. One of the major gods for Egypt is the river Nile's god. And this is direct attack against that particular god. The other major god for, Israel, for Egypt is the sun god or Ra. And so, and then they have several other gods. <laughs> They're calling the dragon, and when you, when you start looking at this, it almost, as you start looking into this, to me, I remember back when Job talked about Leviathan in chapter 49 of Job, uh, how, it, how the no, no uh, hooks will come into it, and it says, here, I'm going to cause these things to happen to you. So I think he's kind of a mixed thing. He's talking about the power. He's using Leviathan as, an, as a picture of the God of that and saying, you think your God is strong just as Leviathan is strong. Let me show you what's happening. And remember, we talked about this. During the 10 plagues, each one of those plagues against Egypt was, a, was a, an attack against an Egyptian god, one or more Egyptian gods. And here, Pharaoh believes himself to be the king. He says, I'm strong. I've got the Nile. I, nothing can stop us. And he says, you know, huh, you think you're strong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think you're strong. Let me, I'm going to show you how strong you, you are. 
And God tends to do this even in our lives. If we think we're strong in some area, we can get by without God in some area of our life, he will just let us fall flat on our face in that area. And usually it's any place that we think, oh God, I'm, I'm so, I've got this, God. I don't need your help. I'll never fall in this area. The next thing you know, you'll be falling in that area. Any place you think you're strong. Because God uses the weak. And I heard a message this last week. A pastor said, you know, the problem isn't that we're strong, not strong enough. The problem is that we're too, we're not weak. You know, we're too strong in the first place. Because we want to depend upon our own knowledge, our own strength so often. And, we, and I've done it. Others have done it. Most everybody's done it. God, I'm just so strong. I, I can do this. And here God's telling Pharaoh, you think you're strong. You know, I'm going to show you that you're not. And so we look at this. He says, I will put hooks in your jaws and will cause fish in your rivers to stick into your scales. And I will bring you up out of the midst of your river and all the fish of your rivers shall be, be stuck to your scales. So here's that picture. Here's a very picture of, you know, you're, you're strong. I'm going to take you up out of the river. And, you know, it can't, you know, I, like I say, I picture when I read this Job 49 where it talks about Leviathan. Has everybody read that chapter before? Okay. Talks about the Leviathan that no, no hooks can go in it. It, it laughs at the, the spear. Its, it's uh, scales are so tight that nothing can get into it. I think that God is using this prophecy as a kind of a play on that. You think, you think it's strong. You think this creature is strong. You think you're like the Leviathan. Well, here's what's going to happen to you. We're going to put those hooks in your mouth. We're going to pull you out of the river. And because God does not want to let people stand in their own strength. And this happens to the lost as well as the Christian. Because if you want to stand up before God, he wants to make sure that you understand you need him. You know, and we need him, and he's going to show us that we need him if we just try to uh, stand up. Did I say some uh, Job 41, uh, 49? I think I meant 41. <laughs> And then it goes in verse 5, I will leave you thrown into the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall upon the open fields. You shall be, not be brought together nor gathered. I have given you for meat to the beast of the field and of the fowls of the heavens. So here he's picturing him. Can you back up just a little bit? Sure. I, I don't know what that means. Your Which one? stick to your scales. Verse 4. Spoiled fish will stick to the scales. Fish is spoiled, it will stick to the scale. I think he also literally means his scales because if it is the Leviathan, he says your scales are so tight that air can't even penetrate them. So I think he's talking about literal fish in this case, you know, sticking to the Leviathan because his scales have been loosened up. His defense. Yeah, sucker fish and that type of stuff. Yeah, the fish of the rivers will stick to your scales. I I think it literally is, huh? It's a poetic, it's a poetic thing on here. And like I said, I believe it's talking, because I see Leviathan in here. I really do see the picture of Leviathan. It says your scales are so tight that nothing gets underneath them, nothing gets through them. And here I think he's saying your scales are now so loosened up that Everything is going to stick to you, including the fish. Probably getting inside underneath, and, and he's now, now vulnerable. 
scales. Underneath, <laughs> underneath, underneath, yeah, stuck to. Strong study. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's how I that's how I kind of pictured it is that he's everything is loose, everything is able to get in underneath, and he says you're so it's so loose the fish are getting up under there as well. And uh, like I said, I, I picture Leviathan when I read this. Now whether that's right or not, I don't know, but I picture Leviathan because when I read that, because it's the, it starts out with, you've got your scales, you've got hooks, and we're going to let all this stuff now get into you. And Ezekiel would have understood, would have known Job, and would quite easily could have been playing on. I'll let you know next Saturday. Okay. <laughs> and so he he's drug, drug up, and still remember, it's a picture. It's, it's a picture of what's going on, and it's a poetic picture. And... Because he's not, he's not, Pharaoh is not literally a dragon that's going to be drug out of the river <laughs> with all these scales and everything loosened up and hooks in his mouth. It's, it's a picture of just as this creature in your water will be drug up out of the water. And this is why, one of the other reasons why I would say Leviathan cannot be a, an alligator or a crocodile because if you drag a crocodile up on land, it walks back to the water. So this is more likely Leviathan is some kind of sea, sea serpent, sea, sea dragon. And that's what I see here in this picture. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I just see, when I look at Job's picture of Leviathan, I see it here. He says, I will leave you on the, uh, thrown up on the wilderness, you and the fish of your sea, and all the little powers, in other words. And you shall fall upon the open field, and you shall not be brought together nor gathered. So he says, you know, you're really proud, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay you and humble you in the wilderness. Just as this Leviathan is drawn out and can't get back to the water, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to put you out. And God does this so often. And we also see in the book of Revelation how Satan is going to be laid bare in front of the world because of God's defeat. And we see this picture of defeat. And we see over and over Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire captures Israel, mistreats them. God says, okay, because of your mistreatment of my people, Assyria is going to come and capture you. Or not Assyria, but uh, the Medo-Persian Empire is going to conquer you. Uh, Babylon conquered the Assyrian Empire for the same reason. They mistreated Northern Kingdom, and God said, okay, you mistreated them. You're, under, you're going to be. And God uses this over and over, says, you know, quit gloating in your power, basically. And this is something for us to be very careful of. When we have a victory in, in spiritual walk, we need to be careful and realize it was God who gave us that victory and not ourselves. And if we think we're all special because of it, God will show us very quickly how unspecial we are and say, okay, you thought you were good. Let's, let's show you what you can do in your own strength. And this happens so many times. Some big work happens for God. And the next thing you know, people are going, okay, we're going to do it again. We're going we're gonna to make it happen. You know, we're going to do it in our own strength. And God says, okay, you can do it in your own strength and see what happens. And it happens over and over and over again that people need to learn to depend on God. And here he's telling Egypt, uh, you think you're strong. I'm going to show you that you're not strong. I'm going to lay you out before the world. And it says, the last part of that is, I have given your meat to the beast of the field and to the fowls of the heaven. So Israel, you thought, uh, Ju uh, Egypt, you thought you were great. Let me show you just how weak you really are. And is, Egypt is going to lose power again with the Babylonians. They're going to fight them the whole time. The Medo-Persian Empire is going to come later on. The Greeks are going to conquer them and take them out of the picture. So there's all kinds of things that are going on. And just the power of God's, what God says.
this will happen. And one of the great things about scripture to help us understand how true scripture is, is all the prophecies that are in it. And we talked about a lot of the prophecies already just in Ezekiel that have already come, play, come, come true. We look at the book of Daniel and how much, how easily he identified all of history. And so accurately that people have said Daniel had to been written after all these kingdoms were, were existing. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a copy of Daniel long before these countries existed and going, nope, there it is, see? It's, it's, it's as old as we say it is. Because the world does not like the idea that God predicts the future very accurately. You know, just the birth of Jesus is just so phenomenal, the, all the different pieces that were put in place there to be able to say, you know, this was the Messiah, all being preached long before he came, pictures of his death long before they even crucified people, the, the, resur the future, and it's amazing as we look at the Bible, and we pick it up and we look at the words of the Bible compared to what we're going through today and say, wow, this book was written about us. Now, most people didn't know better. They'd be going the same thing they've done in the past. Well, the, the book was written, you know, <laughs> was written yesterday. They just can't get away with it because it's been around for hundreds of years, you know, for hundreds of years in the ex uh, form that it's in and thousands of years in its, in its other form. So it's, they can't get away with saying, well, no, this was all accidental. <laughs> they added this in. And so it's wonderful just to know how powerfully God has made the Bible to prophesy the future and gives us great confidence that if God can do that, he is God, which we already know. <laughs> but it gives us that proof that he is God. It says, let me just demonstrate. And I can't remember where it is, but one place it says, okay, you, you, you false gods and idols, go to your idols and ask them to predict the future. Because <laughs> I have, ask your idols to predict the future. Give any one, any one <laughs> prediction. And you know, it just doesn't happen. And we have all these quote-unquote prophets, and you, they put flowery language together that could mean almost anything. And God says very clearly in many cases, this is what's going to happen. And it's so clear, you don't even have to try to guess what it was. Daniel gave four kingdoms that were going to, to follow in succession, and sure enough, we see exactly those four kingdoms coming out. You know, he talks about the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then he talks about the Greek Empire, and then he talks about how it's going to split into four. And sure enough, when Alexander the Great dies, four, king, his four generals take over his, over his kingdom, and it falls into ruin. Then you get Rome coming in, and Rome breaks up into ten, ten primary uh, powers after it breaks up. And you go, wow, here it is. <laughs> long time ahead of time, not, not flowery, it could be any, anything and everything, but here it is, very precise as to what happens. And we look at this and say, God, you are just so wonderful. Just, just another proof. We, you know, we shouldn't need it, but just another proof. And this is why Peter tells us, be ready to give a reason for what we believe or an apology, a, a reason, a reason for what we believe. And it's so much fun to be able to give people a reason. I've enjoyed doing that most of my life. You know, people go, well, how can you believe that book of fairy tales? You know, what, what do you think is a fairy tale? Tell me, tell me one of them and let's defend it. Let me, let me show you why it's not. Let me show you places where it is absolutely true. And this is why I really want to work with our church just to get better and better at being able to know what you believe and why. And 
because that's the most important thing, to be able to tell people why you believe it. And not just, well, it's what I believe, it's what I was taught. Uh, you know, and, and I've heard people say, well, it's in the Bible, so I believe it, and I can understand what they're saying, and I appreciate it, and I know that that's a true statement, but I want it to be more than just, I believe it because it's written down. as a good starting place. That's good for the baby crawling around on the floor, <laughs> but for the mature Christian, that's not a good, start, you know, good place to end. And I've heard it, you know, I've heard it many times when people have been walking with God all their life. Well, it's in the Bible, so I just believe it. I'm going, well, okay, but have you grown? <laughs> Have you grown to where Peter says, be ready to give an answer? Why? Why do I know that Jesus rose from the dead? Man, I can give you all the reasons over and over again. The, 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 the historical, the, the legal, the, you know, the, the changed lives, and go right down the list and say, for me, it's not even a question of did he resurrect. It's why would anybody not believe that he res resurrected? And for creation, it's the same thing. I can go down the list of scientific reasons why I believe in creationism as opposed to the false teaching of evolution because it holds no, holds no scientific water. And yet it's taught as science and creationism is taught, taught as religion and fable. And yet creation holds up to scientific examination much better than evolution holds up to scientific evolu uh, examination. So we, know, we need to know why we believe, what we believe, and why we believe. All right, uh, verse 6. And the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord God, because they have been a staff or a reed of reed to the house of Israel. So he goes, you're going to know that I'm God because Israel depended on you. And all you were was a reed. And this is in, as opposed to a staff. A staff was something you can use support. If you try to support yourself on a reed... It would crumble and crash, which is just what he says in verse 7. It goes, when they took hold of you in their hand, you did break and rend all their shoulder. And when they leaned upon you, you broke and made them, made them all their loins to be as a, at a stand. So in other words, you made them fall down. You know, they fell down. They tried to depend on you, and you broke. And if you read in Jeremiah during this same period of time, Jeremiah told the king, do not go to Egypt. Egypt for help. God, is, God has put you into the hands of the Babylonians. Just surrender. Be a good vassal and you're going to be okay. And he decided no, he was going to try to go to Egypt for help. And Egypt, if, we don't, if you don't know this, it, Egypt in the spiritual sense represents the world. And so basically Israel was trying to go back into the world in, in the picture spiritually. Uh, and this is what all through the 40 years of wandering and the, one, and the exodus, they kept wanting to go back to Egypt. God, we don't like what you're doing here. We don't like the spiritual world. We want to go back into what we know. And Christians often do this with God. God, uh, we just don't like the direction you're taking us. We want to go back. We want to go back where it was really good. I know it didn't seem so good when I got saved and I wanted out of it, but God, it looks so good now that, I, that, that I'm out of it. I want to go back. And we've talked about how you can't go back. It's never what you remember, and it is not fun anymore because of the conviction. And the crowd that you left doesn't trust you because you're now, you're now somebody that's not one of them. So there, you can never go back, and yet so often our heart is to go back. Let me go back to do whatever. And you know, have you ever tried to go back and do something that you... I'm not even talking about sin. 
Yeah, I went through this when I first moved to Kingman. I didn't want to be back in restaurants, but I moved back to restaurants and very quickly remembered what I didn't like about restaurants. I remembered all the things that were good. And there was lots of good. I loved restaurant work in, for, in many ways, but there were a lot of things I didn't like about restaurant management. Sin is the same thing. You go back, thinking that you're going to whatever it was you, you enjoyed about sin. And we've got to keep this in mind. Sin has an enjoyable part. When you're in the midst of sin, it is enjoyment. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. <laughs> Plain and simple, we think there's something that we're enjoying. The consequences, though, are death. And when we experience that, we know that it's not where we want to be. The person who lies is thinking they're getting away with something. They thought they'd get away with something. There's that thrill of getting away with it until the lie falls apart and they get caught. The person who is uh, into drugs or alcohol think they're, think they're enjoying their their forgetfulness of that night or 24 hours or however long it lasts them for that. But then there's the consequences when they come off of that. If nothing else, the simple loss of the income that you spent getting there and usually much more. And so sin has its allurance and God is saying, you know, my people thought you were going to be their strength and you broke and you hurt them. He goes, you put their shoulders out of place and their and their loins were hurt, you, you made them in pain because they depended upon you. And, is, and when Israel tried to go to Egypt, they were over, overtaken, they were sent back, and then, got, and then Nebuchadnezzar went in and conquered Egypt and made them his vassal. So it's a historical thing that happened as well. Verse 8, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring a sword upon you and cut off man and beast out of you, and the land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste, and they will know that I am the Lord, because he has said, The river is mine, and I have made it. Behold, therefore, I am against you, and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt utterly waste and desolate, from the tower of Sicilon, even to the border of Ethiopia. No foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast shall pass through it, neither shall it be inhabited forty years." And I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate, and her cities among the cities that are laid waste shall be desolate forty years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and will disperse them through the countries. This talks of a battle that most people kind of believe was Nebuchadnezzar coming in and conquering them. But the devastation and destruction does not sound like the battle of Nebuchadnezzar, nor does it even sound like the battle of uh, Alexander the Great, nor any of the Caesars. I have this feeling that it's talking about something even future, because I cannot picture a time or know of a time in history that Egypt stood desolate for 40 years. Now, it's had some problems. There's been places, and it's been weakened over the years, but not desolate where no foot is, is traveling upon it. So I tend to believe because of the extremeness of this, it started with Nebuchadnezzar and is going to be fulfilled sometime future to be completed to this, to this extent. Unless somebody knows a picture of history that I'm not, not contemplating, but I've never known a time when they were totally wiped out with nothing but Bedouins in their, in their area. They've always had their cities. They've always been a nation. Quite weakened at times, but always been a nation. And this is a picture of a nation that's no longer a nation. Nobody lives there. Yeah, this sounds like more like a nuclear blast taking them out and saying you're going to be desolate for a while or, or an extreme destruction of their... Nile is 
Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's. It's a vast amount of that territory over there. Kind of why I think this will be, this is why I kind of think this is probably talking about during the tribulation period. When it, everything is going to break loose and things are going to fall apart, and then it will be made desolate for 40 years into the into the millennial kingdom. That's what I picture on this because I can't think of any time in history where that area has been a waste. Because as you said, if nothing else, the 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 Nile Delta has always been important to to that that region. So this is one of those pictures where I think we're talking future future, even though everybody that I read tries to say this is Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't destroy him, destroy him that much. Didn't destroy him to the point of not having anybody walking in their land. And they, I've never never seen that in history that I can recall. or couldn't find it. But he says, I'll bring a sword upon you and cut you off. And that definitely starts with Nebuchadnezzar. And the land of Egypt shall be desolate and waste, and they shall know that I am the Lord God, because I have said, because he has said, the river is mine, I have made it. And this is kind of a bold statement. This is Pharaoh saying, this river's mine and I have made it. But you know, in our day and age, man has claimed that standard over a lot of things when they dam up rivers and make, make uh, lakes on one side and they let water go down the other side. I've heard them claim that, you know, we've made this river or we have altered this path of this river. Man is getting pretty bold in what we say and claim about nature. And you know, the funny thing is, God has a way of making things back the way he wants them if, it, if it's an issue. Man may think he's pretty smart, but God says, okay, let me just show you how smart you are. We'll, we'll give an earthquake and that dam will break, or we'll send rain and, and make you have water that you don't, don't want to deal with. But here, Pharaoh thought that he was God. You've got to keep in mind, at this period of time, these kings think they're God, or at least they tell the people that they're God. I'm not so sure that they actually believed it so much as just tried to get people to believe it and treat them as God-like. But here he's saying, you say that you've created the river. And you're, you're using the river. And, and Egypt did use the river. The river was a major traveling route. Their major industry of fishing and, and came out of it. It watered all their crops. As you said, the Nile was so important to Egypt that if it was lost, that whole region would be messed up. Everything about that region would be wiped out if the Nile was totally displaced. And it is quite possible that God can, will do that in the future. Not done it yet. Not that I've ever been able to recall. And he says, I'm going to cut you off. And he says, behold, I'm against you and against your rivers. I will make the land of Egypt an utterly waste and desolate from the tower of Cicillone, even to the border of Ethiopia. And Sicilane, we're not quite sure where it is. We believe it's like, I heard one person say that it's one of the lighthouses on the, up on the northern coast, which makes sense. I'm going to ask Bessie. She's got the map there. Mine says from uh, Migdal to Aswan and uh, even to the border of Kush. Well, Kush is Ethiopia. And it says Syene. Syene. Yeah, I don't know where my calendar is. Well, see, I don't have much Egypt on that map, so. Yeah, somewhere in the north. Anyway, Cush or Ethiopia is in the south, so this other one's going to be in the north, from, from north to south is what he's saying. 
we, we would have a similar statement from New York to LA or something of that nature, um, showing the entire nation as the, as the picture of it. So these king pharaohs think they're gods, the deity. All, all, the God, all the kings of that day declared that they were God. Well, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of them did. Uh, Nimrod from the Babylonian Empire did. The Assyrian king did. The Babylonian king did. Basically, it was a way to say, you know, I'm, I'm above human, you know, so you're going to do what I say. Even, even in the medieval days, uh, they didn't quite call themselves gods, but they wanted to be treated as God. You know, the crown in England owned everything. The crown in France owned everything. You, you, weren't able to, you weren't allowed to go kill even the rabbits and the squirrels because the king owned, the crown owned them. And basically, they didn't say they were God, but for all practical purposes, they're saying, I own everything. So they might as well have been saying, I am God. And, you know, they, carried, they held that power of, you know, the, the old cliche, off with their head, was, was not uncommon in that period. You know, you, I own the land, I own the animals, and by the way, you people, I own you. And I can do with you what I want to do because I am the sovereign king who has the right to do whatever. So they didn't quite say they were God, but they acted like they were. Uh, king James wanted the Bible to be written in such a way that the divine right of the crown was protected, which is why the... Puritans and many of the Protestants did not use the King James Bible for, for their starting use. They used the Geneva Bible, which was very anti-crown <laughs> in its translation. And uh, so we see these different things that are going out, out there. And he says, you know, I have made you. And it says, behold, in verse 10, therefore I am against you and against your rivers. I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolate from the Tower of Selion, even to the border of Ethiopia or Cush. Uh, no foot of man shall pass through it, nor foot of beast shall pass through it, neither shall it be inhabited 40 years. And this is the one place where I do not see this ever, as, as having happened. Right huh? That's the right yeah. There. No foot of man or beast, which tends to make me really think, in our day and age, from our point of view, that a nuclear blast hit them and made it so nobody would go through it because that would be about the only thing I could think of that would make it so wasted that nothing will go through it because it would be contaminated. And that's a nice speculation for what it's worth. I, I picture this as describing a nuclear blast in, in Egypt. Egypt's still angry with their Israel. Yeah. They're always messing around. I wouldn't doubt it. Everybody's, uh, everybody on that area is angry at Israel all the time, so it's, it's just the way it is. Israel is not afraid of protecting themselves if it came down to it. They've already said that. You know, they will not let anybody else threaten them. So, verse 12 says, And I will make the land of Egypt desolate in the midst of the countries that are desolate, and her cities along among the cities which are, that are laid waste shall be desolate 40 years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and will disperse them through the country. So again, this just pictures a time that I have not seen in all of history, a time when they are totally desolate and wiped out. Even when Israel was taken out of the country and it was given to the poor, there were people still there. And this is a picturing something that just doesn't have a parallel in history. So that's why I'm absolutely convinced that this is talking about something in the future yet to come. 
Now, how far in the future? I don't know. You know that area is so volatile that I can picture nuclear weapons being used all over the place, even, even with the Middle Easterners against each other because they don't like each other any better than they like it, uh, dislike Israel. Uh, they, get, they get battles with each other. The only thing is Israel makes a common enemy for them to, get, to keep focused on, but they're always battling each other because each, you know, we think of, again, as outsiders, we think of uh, Jewish people as one great big block of theology, but there's all kinds of different smaller sects of, of Ju Judaism. And the same thing is true of the Muslim world. There's two major Muslim sects, and there's bunches of minor ones even below those. They're not this great big huge conglomerate of here, here is one group that they all believe the same thing. It's not true. And so they fight each other all the time too. So this could be as easily one of them going against Egypt as Israel going against Egypt or God just totally taking them out. So all kinds of things can happen to make this happen. And that world is, that area of the world is very volatile. Very volatile. And Christians are still very strong in, in, in Egypt, even though they're a minority, they're still freedoms and stuff. So there could be a Muslim world that says, fine, we're going to take it. You know, you guys are too friendly with, the, with them. We're going to take you out. And the fact that they've made some peace treaty overtures to Israel, there's all kinds of things that are trying to go on over there. And the very volatile part of the world. They all hate Israel and they all hate each other. And all that hatred eventually spoil, uh, uh, falls out and, and ruins things. And what this means to this picture is at some point, at some point in history, Egypt's going to be destroyed. Whether it's just a huge carpet bombing and making desolate for 40 years, I really think it would be some kind of nuclear, nuclear uh, attack. So take that for what it is. <laughs> All right, verse 13. Yet thus saith the Lord God, at the end of 40 years I will gather the Egyptians from the people where they have been scattered, and I will bring again the, the captivity of Egypt, and will cause them to return to the land of Pathos, to the land of their inhabitation, and they shall be there a base kingdom. And it shall be the basis of the kingdoms, neither shall it exalt itself any more above the nations, for I will diminish them, that they shall no more rule over the nations, and it shall be no more the confidence of the house of Israel, which brings their iniquity to remembrance, when they, when they shall look after them, but they shall know that I am the Lord God. So God says, after 40 years, I'm going to bring them back together. I'm going to bring them back, just as he's done to Egypt, uh, Israel. Israel has been coming together as a nation. And we've said this, as more and more anti-Semitism starts raising up around the world, we're going to see more and more Jewish people returning to Israel, just for the peace, just for the sake of being peace, peaceful. You know, go to some place where... They're, they're not going to have their doors you know, painted and, and kicked in and fires burned in their houses and, and businesses torn up just because. And that's happening more and more in our world. Especially in Europe, it's happening a lot again. It's rising really big in, in Germany again. It's even rising in the United States. Every once in a while, you'll see this article about Nazis and, and, and swastikas and everything being painted on synagogues and, and on their tombstones and everything in the and 
as this intensifies, more and more Jews are going to return to Israel. And yet God says, you Egyptians, you're going to be kicked out of your land. You're going to be dispersed around your land. And I'm also going to bring you back after 40 years. He's going to bring them back. And you look at what he says. And it says uh, in 14, and will cause them to return to the land of Pathros, which is an area of, of Egypt, to the land of their inhabitants, and there they shall be a base kingdom or a low, humble kingdom. They will never be the power that they were. And remember, they've been a power for a long time. They were the power during Abraham's wandering in the wilderness. They were the power when Israel went down into Egypt. And if you remember your Western civilization history, you know, uh, Egypt was one of the big powers before the Assyrians became a power, and then the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. But the, uh, Egypt was a very strong power militarily and economically for a long time because they had that delta area where they, for a long time they were the only place that could really grow huge amounts of crops up there in the, in the Delta Nile, and they fed a lot of people. And so they were a great power. And God says, I'm going to bring you back again, but once I bring you back, you're not going to be the power. Israel's not going to depend upon you, which makes sense if it's the end days, that Israel's not going to depend on Egypt because it will have nobody to depend on. When it gets to the end of the seven years of tribulation, Israel will stand alone. No America, no England, no France, no Germany, nobody will stand with them. It'll be Israel and God against the world. And it's really sad because as we're seeing it, we're seeing more and more of the countries pulling away from Israel. All the time, these things are going on. Uh, Israel has more condemnations from the UN than any you know, dozens of other countries. And it's a very strange thing because in Israel is the one place in the Middle East where the republic actually works where a democratic republic really works well in the Middle East, and it's one of only a handful of true democratic societies that is working correctly. It's an amazing thing because our founding fathers said a republic will only work with a moral people. And it is true, because if you're immoral, you will get the government that you want, which will be an immoral government. And eventually, a republic will collapse under the weight of the immoral government. And we're seeing our government closer and closer to imploding because of all the immorality that's in it. And at some point, they're saying it's not, they will come out, it's not working, and somebody will stand up and say, I need to be your leader. Very similar to what Hitler did in Germany. Elected as chancellor, ran, ran, as chan, you know, ran the country as chancellor for eight years, and then decided, well, we're not working. We just need, it. We need to be a dictatorship here. And next thing you knew, he was a dictator. And everybody goes, well, that can't happen in America. We've got this, that, and the other thing. But you know, especially the Constitution, look at how our Constitution is being shredded on a daily basis. And it's not, it's not a thing of when, uh, if it happens. It's going to be when it happens. This country's government is going to fall apart at some point. Now, whether it's in our lifetime or further down, I'm not even going to speculate. I'm just saying it will happen because of how far we're how far we're down into the into the gutter with all of our all of our politicians and stuff going on, and you know, 
I'm not scared of that because God's still in charge. My hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in this country. My hope is in God. Now, I like being an American. I like the freedoms of America. <laughs> but I also know that they've been taken for granted for so long, and they're very right on the edge of being lost. Our economy's on the edge of being lost, and our government's on the edge of being lost. And anybody who doesn't believe it, just look what's going on right now in our government. Look what's going on during the Obama era, during the Bush era. It's been getting progressively worse as we've gone along with more infighting, more, more battles, more you can't trust anybody there, period, either side of the aisle. You know, you can't trust. And somebody's going to stand up and say, okay, this is it, it's over. And we think this will never happen. Well, Rome said the same thing in its republic. It'll never fall. And yet it fell. And here we see him saying that Israel will no longer put its confidence in, the, in, in Egypt, in the flesh. Again, we have a great spiritual picture here. Israel, who's supposed to be the spiritual, spiritual man, going to support the flesh. And God says, I'm going to destroy the flesh. I'm going to kill the flesh. Crucify the flesh, as it was, we're told in the... In our, in our side, and not let it come back. And it's not going to come back to be the great kingdom it is. And that's you know, from a spiritual perspective. And I don't want to spiritualize this, but it's still a, a spiritual picture. You know, we're to have our flesh crucified, and it, and it keeps coming back, unfortunately, but it should never come back as strong as before it was crucified. Our flesh should not have dominion over our life as a Christian if it's crucified. Now, unfortunately, we keep letting it come out of the grave and, and trip us up. But it should never be the strong power it was before we got saved. And so this is all kind of a spiritual picture. And I don't want to spiritualize it too much because it's also a real event picture. But I also want to bring out that it has impact even beyond just the, the historical setting of it. It really is a picture of how we live as God's people. Verse 17. And it came to pass in the seventh and twentieth year of the first month of the first day of the first day of the month. All right, so we're on the twenty-seventh year, and he started on the tenth year. So it's seventeen years in this chapter that's covered. All right, that on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, "Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, caused his army to serve a great service against Tyrus. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was peeled. Yet had he no wages for nor his." For his army, for Tyrus, for the service that he has served against it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt unto Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take her multitude, and, shall, and take her spoiled, and take her prey, and it shall be the wages of his army. I have given you the land of Egypt for his labor, I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, wherewith he served against it, because they wrought for me, saith the Lord, in that day I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth, and I will give you power, I give you the opening of the mouth of the midst of them, and they shall know that I am the Lord your God. All right, so he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you destroyed Tyre. Remember, we spent three, three chapters on Tyre and how powerful Tyre was. And, and basically, it says that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> didn't get enough spoil out of it to, to support his army. And remember, we've talked about this. In that day and age, the army was paid 
primarily by the spoils of war. They had their food, they had their provisions for battle, but you really got your pay by staying alive in battle and being able to strip the enemy of their of the spoil or stripping the cities on, the, on a conquered city. And for destroying Tyre, they remember Tyre, all they did was move out into an island and kind of got away from Nebuchadnezzar a bit. They moved a lot of their stuff out to sea. And Nebuchadnezzar's army did not earn enough money to really support them. It was kind of a wasted campaign. But he says, I'm going to give you Egypt. Now, Egypt's a very, or was, a wealthy nation at that time. It still had lots of gold, lots of silver, lots of prestige. And God says, we're going to go to battle and you're going to win that one. And your army is going to be well paid. Well paid. And I can't imagine why these guys would wear, take so much you know, wealth with them when they went into battle. Uh, you know, let's wear our gold earrings and our rings and our, and our decorative uh, items and everything. And yet we read over and over again that they found tons of gold after these battles. You know, all through scripture we read how they find huge amounts of gold from the battles. And you know, I can't figure why you wouldn't, wouldn't leave that stuff at home. <laughs> uh, of course, there aren't any banks at home and no safes at home either, so you probably figure, figure it's safer with you than, than, than sitting under your bed at home or in a, in a hole in the ground so you forget where it's at. But, <laughs> but uh, he says, they had no wages nor his army for Tyre, and he says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, in verse 19, I will give the land of Egypt unto Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take her multitude, all of her people, and take her spoil, and take her prey, and it shall be wages to his army. He says, you're going to get your money. You're going to get your wages. And when you go against Egypt, you're going to get well paid. And we think about this. Even in recent years, when archaeologists have gone to Egypt, the wealth they have found tucked away in these... Um, uh, pyramids and, and everything that they found. Here they, they just barely touched it, but it was enough to make everybody happy. And there was still stuff left over for us to discover in the 19th and 20th centuries. And he says, Egypt will fall. And again, sometimes when we read these things, we don't really understand what a big deal this is. Because this is like saying, you know, like saying in the 1800s, England's going to fall. Isn't going to be the power. Isn't going to be the around the uh, the power empire around the world. Anybody would have laughed. Anybody saying that, they would have laughed at them. You know, oh, sure, England, the the empire that that the sun never sets on. Yeah, sure, it's going to fall out of power. And yet, England has fallen out of power compared to how great it was. And you know, people have been saying that about America for the last couple, you know, last 150 years. Well, America's never going to fall. Never lose its place in, 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 in authority. Yeah. I hate to say it, but history tells us that we will. If you do nothing but look at history, it tells us that we will lose our place of authority. Because most countries, most empires, most, most kingdoms last no more than 200, 300 years, maybe four or 500 at the outside and fall, fall away. That may not fall completely out of the picture, but but cease to be a power. And so here he says, Egypt. And this is the picture I want to tell you. When he says Egypt is going to fall, most people, when they would have heard this, would have laughed. Oh, sure, right. Egypt, Egypt is not going to be a kingdom. 
You know, they've been a kingdom now for 600 years. What do you mean they're not going to be a kingdom? And he says, they're going to fall. And it is wonderful for us to understand that God is in control. And he's the only one that we can put our faith in and our hope in. Because whatever else we put our hope in is going to fail. And if you don't believe it, look at history. Egypt falls, Assyria falls, Babylon falls, Medo-Persian Empire falls, the Greeks fall, the Roman Empire for all practical purposes falls and gets split up in all these little smaller countries. England rises up, it falls, America rises up, and it will fall eventually. The Antichrist will rise up, and he will fall. And then Jesus will come along and start a kingdom that will last forever. And when Satan tries to go against him at the end of the 1,000-year reign, he just says, okay, you've got your army, goodbye. (laughs) His battles are real quick. (laughs) He just speaks and the battle's over. When, when we return with him at the end of the seven years of tribulation, Satan and his armies are gathered to fight, make war against him, and he just speaks, and the sword comes out, and the words come out of his mouth, and pictured as the sword coming out of his mouth, and they die. Yeah. Pretty, pretty good battle. Yeah. The only one gets hurt is the enemy. <laughs> and he says, these powers will fail. And we want to be very careful. What do we put our trust in? Even as Christians, what do we put our trust in? Are we putting our trust in God? Or are we putting our trust in what we can accomplish or what we think we can accomplish? Or is it in God? Is it in our country? And I know lots of Christians and conservatives who their trust is in our country. Or more specifically, the Republican Party. Because they keep running on campaigns that say they're conservative and then, and then don't do the, do the stuff you know, it's, that they say they're going to do. Our trust can't be in our government. Our trust cannot be in any one party. Our trust can't be in any people. It can't be in our, in our money. And for all my friends that are gun enthusiasts, it can't be in their guns to defend themselves. Uh, even though it might be a good thing to be able to do, it's not, your trust can't be in that, in that weapon. It can't be in your stockpile of food that you might have. It can't be in your stockpile of anything. It must be in God. Now, that doesn't mean don't make plans for the future or anything, because God says to make plans, be good stewards. But my trust is not in anything that is my plan. My trust is not in my, re, my 401k retirement plan or, or, or the state employee federal uh, a pension plan that my wife's involved with, the school district, or the Social Security Administration. My hope is and strength is in God. Now, I invested in my 401k. I hope that it's still there when I retire. I hope the economy is still there when I retire. But my hope is not in that money. As I get closer to retirement, I look at it and say, okay, there's a good bit of money sitting out there in the future if, if God allows it to be there. And if it's there, then praise God, it'll be nice. If not, God supported me in the past, he'll support me in the future. And you know, where is our hope is so important. Is it in Egypt? Is it in our stuff? Is it in our things? Is it in the possessions that I can have? Or is it in God? And if it's not in God, it's a false hope. Because that hope will fall apart. Our economy of the world is poised to fall and collapse. At any time, it could collapse. It's been artificially supported for quite a while now. And it could fall in any moment. Then 401ks and everything else won't mean a thing. 
Yeah. And we want to be very careful. What is our hope in? Who is my greatest hope? Is it in myself? <laughs> that, that won't work. I already know that. I've tried that in the past. Trying to trust in what I can ac get accomplished doesn't work. Trying to trust in my government isn't going to work. Trying to trust in the bank account and in the, in the, in, in the money is not going to work. Trying to trust in anything but God ultimately won't work. And again, not saying this is scary. So all we got to do is look at history to know all this stuff is true. Because every country has gone through this. Every empire has gone through this. We're facing it for the whole world. This is why Revelation is so, so scary sometimes when people look at it. Because they see the economy falling down. Uh, the whole world coming down and violence taking place in such a great way that we've said that 66% of the entire world's population will die during the tribulation period. And I believe we're at something like 4.5 trillion people or something in this world, which means 3 trillion people will die. That's a lot of death. A lot of death that the Bible predicts. And it'll be a horrendous time to be alive. And praise God, those of us who are Christians won't be here. None of us get off this planet alive. Well, if you get raptured, you will. But that's a very rare, rare event. <laughs> it only happens one time. It'll take a lot of people away, but it'll only happen once. But for almost every one of us, it's an absolute, absolute assurity that we're going to die. Okay. If we happen to be here at the rapture, then we won't die. We'll be translated. But for most people, it's about a hundred percent chance of death. And and for many of us, it might be a hundred percent. I don't know how close to the rapture we are, but you know, we might be close. And Paul said that Paul and all the apostles said that it could be any moment, and it can be any moment. There's nothing that has to happen for the for God to take us home, because the world is getting evil. The world is as evil as it was in Noah's day or very close to it. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And God at any moment could say, okay, church, it's time to come home and we're entering the last phase. And I praise God. If that happens, praise God. If not, praise God. <laughs> it gives us more time to win, win people to Christ because that's our call on this world is to win people to Christ and take advantage of reaching out trying to get people to come to Christ and, and change their, their uh, destiny. Then in verse 21, In that day I will cause the horn of the house of Israel to bud forth, and I will give the opening of the mouth in the midst of them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. The horn is power, so their power will burst forth. And this is why, again, why I really picture this as being the tribulation period and is in uh, Egypt being destroyed at some point before that period and because Israel will be where God rules. When Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation period and steps on Mount Olivet, he rules from Israel, Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be just what the Jews of Jesus' day expected, the kingdom of all the earth. And that was why Jesus has always been considered to be a failed Messiah by the Jewish people because he came and did not set up the kingdom of Israel and Jerusalem as the capital. So he's been considered a failed Messiah by the Jews. They never understood the long gap between the two, between the two comings. But it's coming. It is coming. He says, 
the rule will bud forth and Jesus will sit in Jerusalem and reign for a thousand years. And then everything will be destroyed and started all over again. And then he'll still reign from Jerusalem because he says in Revelation that Jerusalem came down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. So he's still going to rule in the new heaven and earth from Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem's just a little tiny thing, uh, 15,000 square, uh, square miles, <laughs> just a little tiny town. Uh, <laughs> Cover, cover half of America. <laughs> so just, a, just a tiny place. <laughs> you know, people go, well, how can everybody live there? Well, it's, it's not only 1,500 1, square miles, it's 1,500 cubed. It goes up 1,500 miles as well. So it is a pretty large city. can fit a lot of people in it. <laughs> Won't have any problem fitting the population of the world in it. Especially after most of them are gone. <laughs> But even then, then we have all the Christians and, and those who have followed God for all of their life. So we're, we're, we'll get a little bit of an increase. But it's still a, a remnant compared to what's been destroyed. But just a small city to run, uh, run, is, run it out of. And it says, you're going to be grown. And it says, I will give you the opening of the mouth in the midst of them so that they're able to speak the restoration. The restoration and quite possibly talking here about the mouth of the Nile River, saying that they're going to have their their abundance back in the, in the new, freshly renewed kingdom. All right, we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, we just help you, ask you to help us. As First off, Lord, we look at this from the spiritual side, that you are our strength. You are the one that we should always lean on and not turn to the flesh, because the flesh will fail, and you will make the flesh desolate. But Lord, we also look at this future event that's yet to be happened that you are going to bring destruction to that part of the world and yet use it to announce that you are God. And we just thank you and ask you to help us as we walk in your, your son's name. Amen.